Well, this evening and on Resurrection Sunday morning, we're going to examine what I'm calling the men who killed Jesus. We're looking at three of them in particular. We'll do one tonight and two on Sunday morning. But our key question for these two messages is very simply, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? After all, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He promised a glorious kingdom. He was beloved by children. He was beloved by the weakest and most vulnerable of society because he cared for them. He cherished them. I mean, if everyone had just said, hey, let's have Jesus do whatever he's going to do, and eventually he'll make our land the greatest place on earth to live, that would have made sense. Wouldn't that have been logical? And in fact, that is precisely what some wanted. Even his own disciples were generally under the impression that Jesus was going to be a a great political leader, a great military leader even, who would finally release Israel from the shackles of Rome. On at least one occasion, the crowds to whom Jesus ministered tried to force him to become king once they saw his miraculous power. I imagine they would think it was pretty neat to see him zap a legion or two of Roman soldiers. But Jesus didn't come to rule the first time he came to die. Luke 9:51 says when the days drew near for him to be taken up he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now you know the story Jesus had chosen 12 men to be his closest followers. He had trained them in the gospel ministry. He had been with them day and night for three and a half years. They were his closest companions, his most intimate confidants. They certainly had their foibles. They had their weaknesses, which were noticeable, probably most in Peter, the leader of the crew. He was continually saying the wrong thing and at times doing the wrong thing. And yet Jesus patiently corrected him and continued working with him. And so when it came to the question of uh, which disciple did Jesus have to correct the most, we would easily say, Peter, about every other page in the Gospels, there's something happening with Peter. But there was another one. If it wasn't for the constant identification by the gospel writers of his identity, this one may have slid by unnoticed. And this disciple, Judas Iscariot, had a secret life in his heart. One that only Jesus in his omniscient, all-knowing nature as God knew. And that secret life in his heart was a heart of greed, of insatiability, of craving, of longing, of avarice, of lusting after all things that would make himself better. In every list of the 12 disciples in the Gospels, Judas Iscariot is always at the bottom. And the Gospel writers identify him every time as the betrayer or the traitor. Now, why is that? Well, because Judas in that day, it was kind of like Joe or Frank today. There were a lot of them. In the Greek version of the, the Hebrew name Judah, in fact, there's seven other people in the Gospels and the book of Acts named Judas or Judah or Jude. And associated with Judas now, the Thursday evening before Good Friday will always be remembered in Scripture from 1 Corinthians 11.23 as, quote, the night when Jesus was betrayed. And listen, Judas the greedy, as we'll call him tonight, 
was indicative of the sin of greed. And the sin of greed is much more than just about wanting a lot of money, although that's somewhat involved. For Judas, this greed involved a belief that Jesus was going to be the most powerful man around soon, and and Judas was going to stick right by him. Because like all men consumed with greed, he was also consumed with power, a lust for more. And if Jesus was going to be the one to overthrow the Roman rule and become king, If Jesus was to be that king, then Judas wanted to be right by his side when it happened. And so for Judas, then Jesus was simply a means to an end. Judas was consumed by greed. Now, it might be tempting to say, well, I can check that off because I'm not really a money-loving person, so I don't have that problem. But greed in Scripture is much more than just a love of money. That's just one of the possible symptoms of greed. Greed, in essence, is a consuming desire to further yourself, to please yourself, to love your own life as the top priority overall. And it's certainly at odds with what Jesus said following him includes. John 12, 25, Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is certainly at odds with what Paul characterized as following Christ. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, greed in the Bible is indicative of a deeply held sinful heart condition, deeply embedded. Psalm 10 verse 3 says that the greedy one, quote, is wicked and boasts of the desires of his soul. Proverbs 119 says that the greedy one hurts others in order to gain for himself. Proverbs 1527 says that the greedy one brings trouble into his own home. Proverbs twenty eight twenty five says that the greedy one stirs up strife and conflict. The New Testament is extremely sober and serious about the incessant and habitual greed of the sinner. Here's how serious it is. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 says that the one who claims to be a brother in Christ and yet is habitually greedy is one we ought not to associate with because he's probably not a brother. He's probably a false believer. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says that the habitually greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you see, you can't be habitually greedy and a Christian. Those two cannot exist together. And to our point that greed is far more than just about money, Ephesians 4.19 characterizes the unrepentant sinner as one who is, quote, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, greed isn't just about wanting money. It's about wanting everything everything that will make me happy. So understand that when Scripture talks about greed, it's far more than just wanting some cash. That's just a symptom you can see. It's a deeply held heart attitude. And Judas is perhaps our ultimate example in Scripture. His greed was manifested in his love of money, but it was merely the barometer of his insatiable lust to please himself. And tonight I'd like to show you three characteristics of the greed of Judas. I'm going to be going to a lot of different scriptures. It might be easier for you just to listen, but we'll start in John chapter 12. 
three characteristics of the greed of, the, the greed of Judas. And I'll read every scripture that you need. First characteristic of the greed of Judas, it was a shameless greed. It was a shameless greed. Now, just to set up this situation here, just a week before Jesus would be arrested, Judas was still perhaps holding out hope that Jesus would take charge as the triumphant king of Israel and put all of his disciples in positions of power. I mean, after all, on more than one occasion, many of his disciples had argued about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, I want to be the prime minister. Well, I want to be this and I want to be that. And so Jesus and his men are dining now at the home of Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead there in Bethany, just a little short walk outside of Jerusalem. John 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The preaching ministry of Jesus and his disciples, it was supported by uh, financially by the generous donations of believers in Christ who saw and believed that he was in fact the Messiah. These donations were funneled to Judas as the steward. He was the treasurer. And here, this woman, Mary, in stark contrast to the greed of Judas, in an act of utterly selfless, sacrificial worship, she anointed the feet of Jesus with a fragrant oil worth a year's wages. Now imagine taking a year of your salary and giving it away in one shot. And that's what she does. And look at the shamelessness of the greed of Judas John's inspired gospel exposes his true character as utterly selfish. He didn't just inwardly think, oh, I wish I could have gotten my hands on that money. No, outwardly, self-righteously, he says, well, we could have given that to the poor. Did you notice? Mary spent her life savings on Christ because that's how she valued him. And to Judas, Christ was of no value at all. Christ was of no worth except a potential means to his own ends. In fact, when Judas finally gave up on Jesus ever taking power, Judas determined to just use Jesus one last time to make a profit. Matthew 26 records that it was right after this act of worship, which Judas saw as extravagant waste because he could have stolen much of the proceeds of that fine oil, the nard, right after that, Matthew 26 says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. What was Jesus worth to Judas? Well, he got all he could out of pilfering during the ministry of Jesus. And then he got one final payoff, 30 pieces of silver. You know what you could buy for 30 pieces of silver in that day? You could buy a slave. 
That's what Jesus was worth to Judas. He was worth the price of a slave, a commodity to be taken advantage of one last time. And by the way, here's how twisted and shameless Judas was. He had been with Jesus for the past three and a half years. He had seen Jesus walk on water, raise the dead, and he had seen him tell people what they were thinking. And yet Judas, like every unbeliever who thinks they're going to pull a fast one on God, Judas seemed to not think about the fact that Jesus was all-knowing, all-seeing. And of course, Jesus knew every single time Judas had pilfered. He knew the exact amount. He knew how much he took, when he took it, and how he did it. But Jesus continued to allow Judas to condemn himself by his own actions. As a matter of fact, the deal that Judas made with the priests that he would give Jesus up to them. So that fateful Thursday night, Judas brought the temple guard and an entire cohort of Roman soldiers. This deal now, he had to come up with his end of the bargain. He had to turn Jesus over. He came to the most likely place to find Jesus. That would be the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside of Jerusalem, a place he had taken his disciples many times. It was familiar to them. And in his shameless greed, absolutely shameless, he identified Jesus to the soldiers by giving Jesus a greeting. We sang about it earlier, the kiss of friendship on the cheek. And here's the irony. With this kiss of friendship, Judas ended his friendship with Jesus forever. Judas had a shameless greed. There's a second characteristic of the greed of Judas. It was a stubborn greed. It was a stubborn greed. I don't think Judas really thought through what he was doing in betraying Jesus. You know, when we're entangled in our own sin, entangled in our selfishness, we're not really spiritually capable of thinking about the consequences of our actions. But the reality of what he had done hit Judas hard when he saw that Jesus wasn't just going to be fined. He wasn't just going to be beaten. He wasn't just going to be reprimanded. He wasn't just going to be maybe even flogged and whipped. Judas saw that Jesus was going to be executed. The one who had been nothing but kind and patient with him. Matthew 27, beginning in the first verse, says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Now, someone might say, well, look, Judas was sorry for what he did. Oh, he absolutely had regret, but it was stubborn regret. He was grieved, but it was selfish grief. His plan hadn't worked out. The consequences were too much for him, and yet his grief was stubborn. It was still based in the fact that his greed didn't pay off. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul explains this to us in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If Judas was actually repentant, what should he have done? When he saw Jesus bound to be led away, he should have cried out, Lord, Lord, please forgive me. I've betrayed you. 
Please don't hold this against me. But he didn't. He just felt sorry for himself. Why is that? Well, just because Judas saw that Jesus was innocent, it didn't change the fact that Judas still thought that Jesus was worthless. Judas was still more important than Jesus. And what Paul said was true of Judas, the worldly grief, grief which is consumed with self-pity and sorrow that you didn't get what you want, it produces death. And Judas hanged himself, and in some fashion his body came down off some sort of cliff. Acts one eighteen says, it, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. If only Judas had cried out for mercy. If only he had cried out and said, I am sorrowful for my sin. I have offended Christ who is worthy, who is worthy of honor and glory and power. But he didn't. There's an obvious contrast to Judas. We've brought this out before. Another disciple who betrayed Christ as well. The apostle Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. And when Peter had denied Christ the third time and the rooster crowed, Jesus made eye contact with Peter and and Peter went away and he wept with sorrow. But what was Peter's sorrow? It was sorrow that leads to repentance. And Jesus restored the humiliated Peter and he made Peter proclaim his love for him three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I do. Judas's greed was so stubborn that even when he saw the disastrous consequences of his own sin, even then he would not believe on Christ, but would rather take what I'm sure he believed would be an escape from his misery, only to find that that misery is now intensified eternally and infinitely under the wrath of God for all time. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Mark 14, 21, for the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, better to not even exist than live under the judgment of God for all time. How much pride do you have to have? How much stubbornness do you have to have to be willing to risk the eternal wrath of God rather than humble himself at the feet of Christ to receive forgiveness? You know, a pastor friend of mine told me recently that he was at the deathbed of an elderly man in the hospital and this man had minutes to live. And he was begging with him to receive Christ to believe the gospel, to have his sins forgiven. And the man was still pridefully refusing the gospel. And my friend said that he pleaded with him to receive Christ, but the man's prideful last words were never, never. And then he went to eternity without Christ. Judas had a shameless greed. He had a stubborn greed. And finally, he had a self-willed greed. He had a self-willed greed. We have a bit of a theological issue here. Some might take issue with the fact that the existence and the actions of Judas were foreordained by God. Psalm 41, verse 9, Old Testament, prophecy about Judas. Even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
In Acts 1 verse 20, after Judas is dead and Jesus has ascended into heaven and the 11 apostles who are left must choose a successor, Peter cites Psalm 109 verse 8 as the reason, quote, may his days be few, may another take his office. And so the question here is, was Judas an unwilling victim? Was he forced by God to fulfill this role as kind of the unwitting betrayer of Jesus? Well, let's see. We could go back to the night Jesus was arrested when he was gathered with the 12 disciples to take the Passover meal together. You don't have to turn here, but it's close if you do have your Bible open. John thirteen twenty one. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now listen, these 12 men with Jesus, they've been together for three and a half years. This is going to be upsetting to them. The very next verse, John 13, 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And so they're looking at each other. First, they're communicating with their eyes. This is a dramatic moment. They've been together day and night for about 42 months now. And now one of them is about to be exposed. Just a few months earlier, back in John chapter 6, Jesus had told them that one of them would betray him. John six seventy and 71, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil? And I don't think it hit him that hard until this night when he said, one of you is right here at this moment. And so at first around this table, they all started looking at each other, but then they started talking. Mark fourteen nineteen says they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? One after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? In Matthew 26, 25, talk about the gall. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. He kept deceiving right to the end. He kept up the show for the other 11. See, Jesus was seated close to Judas and told Judas, basically, I know it's you. But the others didn't hear this. And right about now, confusion breaks out and all of them start talking at once. Luke's gospel adds in Luke twenty two twenty three, they began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this. And apparently while these multiple accusations were flying, well, I think it's you, I think it's you, you look suspicious. I'm not sure about you. I've always had questions about you. <laughs> Peter thought he would go right to the source. John 13, 23 says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table with Jesus, at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus, remember they reclined like on pillows around a low table, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Now the disciple whom Jesus loved, of course, is the writer of this gospel, John. John is the opposite of Judas. He has a close relationship with Christ that is real, it's authentic. And so Peter motions to John. It may have been a small nod of the head. It may have been kind of a little signal. Or if he thought Jesus wasn't looking, maybe a larger gesture like, ask him, ask him. <laughs> So John is right next to Jesus and he leaned back against Jesus so that only Jesus could hear. And he says, Lord, who is it? John 13, 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Now here's the question. 
John said, Lord, who is it? Probably in somewhat of a, a low tone, but we don't know whether Judas heard the answer or not. I'll tell you what I think. Did Judas hear Jesus say that his betrayer would be the one to whom he gave a morsel of bread? The evidence points to the fact that Judas did hear that answer. First of all, he already knew that Jesus knew there was a betrayer. He knew that Jesus knew who he was, and yet Jesus continued allowing him to be there with the twelve And secondly, Jesus was acting as the host of this Passover meal, the host of the meal to take a a morsel of food, to dip it into the kind of fruit sauce of dates and raisins and sour wine, which was used at Passover. It was the prerogative of the host to dip food and hand it to someone. It was an offering of fellowship. It was an offering of friendship. It was an offering of communion together. Jesus was offering fellowship. It was an act of friendship, of unity, except in this case, In this case, to accept it from the hand of Jesus would be to confirm that Judas intended to betray Jesus. And so Judas had an option. He just heard Jesus say, the one to whom I give this bread and he takes it is the one who will betray me. Judas Judas had an option. He had the option to say, no, thank you, Lord. I cannot accept this from your hand. I will not betray you. but he took it. And now Psalm 41.9 is fulfilled. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And this is what makes this such an insulting betrayal so hurtful. He who ate my bread. This is a, a big picture. This isn't just about sharing the meal together. This is the one with whom I fellowshiped and walked and ministered and laughed together for three and a half years He has lifted his heel against me. Now, in our thinking, we kind of think of this metaphorically maybe as kicking someone while they're down. That's not what this is talking about. The much better choice is much more hurtful. In Jesus' day, they had a saying which spoke of demonstrating total rejection, total annihilation of a relationship, total refusal to fellowship. And that saying is to shake the dust off your feet. It meant that as you're walking away from someone or walking away from some place with whom you're breaking fellowship, you lift up each foot and you shake it symbolically to say, I don't even want the dirt from your house going with me. And so to lift your heel against someone isn't just a kick. It's a total testimony that says, I reject you. I want nothing to do with you. I deny you. I am repulsed by you. You are worthless to me. Did Judas hear Jesus say that the one that receives the morsel from him would betray him? It's apparent that he did hear that and that he took the bread. Now, what does this have to do with whether or not Judas was simply a helpless victim caught in the vortex of God's plans? Listen very carefully to the order of events. John 13, 26. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas left to get the soldiers who would arrest Jesus in just a few hours. Who made the choice to take the bread? Judas did. Judas and Judas alone is responsible. 
Acts 1.25, Peter said that Judas turned aside. Judas was culpable. Acts 1.18 says that the act of Judas is an act of wickedness, of self-willed wickedness. Judas exhibited a self-willed greed. And yes, Judas was prophesied to betray Christ. This doesn't make him a helpless victim of some cosmic scheme to ruin him. There's one other proof that he betrayed Christ willingly. There's something else also prophesied in the Old Testament, and that is the death of Christ. And yet Jesus went to the cross completely voluntarily, completely of his own will, though it was prophesied. So our initial question was, why did Jesus have to die? Here's the first part of our answer to that question. Because Judas is not alone. Judas is not alone. Judas showed a shameless greed. Guess what? Every sin you've ever committed against God has been played on the big screen of heaven, so to speak. There are no secret sins. All sins are revealed Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You will never slide a sin by God. You will never get by with something. Judas showed a stubborn greed. The more you sin, the more you are determined to sin. And to be determined to sin is basically choosing to live as if there is no God. That's what that is. The stubborn sinner continues to dig this pit of sin deeper and deeper. And what will happen to him? Psalm seven fourteen says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. Just like Judas. Going to the end of life, stubbornly refusing to repent rather than bending the knee to the one who could save. Judas showed a self-willed greed. Before the flood of Noah, Genesis 6, 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There will be no excuses to be made. There will be no defense. For all who have not received the forgiveness freely offered by Christ, the forgiveness purchased by paying the penalty for your sin at the cross. For all who have not received forgiveness, there will be, just like Jesus with Judas, there will be a final offer. There will be a last time. There will be a concluding extension of the Lord's hand to offer salvation. And what is the offer that God makes? Isaiah 118, God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He's saying, reason with me. Why would you not bend the knee and humble yourself before God for a moment in time so that you might spend all eternity with me? Isaiah 55, one, this beautiful invitation Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is metaphorically an offer to come to the waters of salvation and drink freely. And for all who have received Christ as Savior, we live every day with thankfulness and gratitude, don't we? Because there was a moment 
when God did offer his salvation to you and the Holy Spirit had already prepared you to humbly say yes. Never say, I wouldn't have been Judas. I have news for you. You were Judas. And God changed you because he's gracious and kind. Let's pray for a moment and then we'll receive the Lord's table together. Our Father, we shudder under the depths of what it means to come under the wrath of God as Judas undoubtedly now has. And yet in your grace and in your kindness, you sent your one and only son, your beloved son, because you loved us and you sent your son to die, to take that wrath upon himself on our behalf so that no longer would we be like Judas, but now the Bible says we will be made like Jesus. We offer you our gratitude now and we remember the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the communion table, the Lord's Supper. We pray and we thank you in Christ's name, amen.